From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. Ten years ago, the world was introduced to Kickstarter, the crowdfunding platform that, in the company's own words, helps artists, musicians, filmmakers, designers, and other creators find the resources and support they need to make their ideas a reality. As of this recording, more than 160,000 projects have been successfully funded through Kickstarter, generating nearly $4 billion in pledges in the process. Kickstarter was founded by Perry Chen, Yancey Strickler, and Charles Adler. And it was Charles I had the opportunity to chat with when he visited Notre Dame as part of the Mendoza College of Business's 10 Years Hence Speaker Series. In addition to making him feel awkward by reading back one of his tweets, I asked him about the founding of Kickstarter and his experience there as head of design. We then covered how designing the site's reward system was and was not like a scene from The Social Network, his influences as a designer, and whether or not he considers himself a disruptor. Charles also talked about his memory of watching the first two Kickstarters to hit a million dollars, and a much smaller campaign whose final product brought him to tears 30,000 feet in the air. Charles Adler, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ever since I found out that you'd be able to do this interview while you were here at Notre Dame, I've been excitedly telling people, I get to do an interview with one of the founders of Kickstarter. <laughs> but then I think about people of, say, my parents' generation, for example, for whom that name might not mean as much, or yep. even the idea of crowdfunding in general might just be this completely foreign concept. So what was kind of the elevator pitch of what, Kickstarter was back, I guess, in 2009 when yeah. you all were first founding it, of, yeah. of what it would be. Yeah. Oh, my God. Elevator pitch. There's, like, so much stress that comes with that word. <laughs> I know. Uh, and that was, like, actually a decade ago. I mean, I'm not going to give you the elevator pitch. Sure. I don't remember what it is. But I will uh, narrate what crowdfunding is yes. and then what Kickstarter is within that. Right. Uh, effectively, crowdfunding is it's kind of built into the name, right? Like, a collection of people coalesce around an idea and contribute capital, money, uh, to see that idea come to life. And the specific sort of Kickstarter aspect to that is all of that, uh, plus this, um, what I would say is the simple idea of all-or-nothing fundraising, which is essentially you want to raise $1,000 and you raise raise $999.99 and uh, the clock strikes zero, so there's a time component that the creator applies to the project uh, the clock strikes zero you don't get any money it's all or nothing but the beauty of it is the contributors don't lose anything so the transaction doesn't happen until zero or technically like a few minutes after zero right 
And so that was that's I would say the the component for Kickstarter was about all or nothing funding, mm-hmm. um, and the thesis around that was um, if you say it's going to cost you a thousand dollars to produce your play or paint your paintings or um, produce your product, you're not going to be able to deliver what you set as an expectation for delivery with anything less than that. And the other magical thing about Kickstarter is that you can always go up. You can continue to go up, right? And there's some really fun stories about, like, you can always go up, but you can't go down, right? Um, and so the idea that your funding goal is, like, your minimum viable goal, just cross over the border, right? Um, but you can always raise more to produce more. I think it one of the things that's appealing about Kickstarter because of that is if I put myself in the shoes on any given campaign of someone who's giving money that... I know that, I, I guess I'm trusting the wisdom of the crowd that there's yes. enough of us that think this is viable so that if there were only 15 of us who each gave $10 yeah. and the person doesn't meet their goal, yeah. then I'm, my $10 isn't going away. Yeah, and I, I, we, so we can pick that apart, actually. It's kind of fun. So um, I would say there's a couple of things to it. One is think about the general construct of a person who does back a project. Is, it starts out with generally people who know the person who's creating the project like you're going to launch a campaign and who are you going to tell your mom right right uh now she's not going through that analysis right uh she's like oh my son's doing a thing i love him it's especially true like right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna give him double the money right, right? like right. it's ridiculous but then it you know she goes and tells her like aunts and uncles mm-hmm. and friends and coffee mates mm-hmm. in the morning whatever whatever right uh, and then you obviously tell all your classmates or maybe here like students, and so there's this whole like there's this whole concept of just like network effect that kind of spirals out. So generally, like most projects start with a very intimate group and then grow out to a less intimate group. I think there's there's also so there's like yes, the wisdom of crowds like it actually I would argue works very well in many in in many directions, even like sniffing out projects that may not be up to snuff. Um, we've seen some really interesting stories around that. And then I think uh, there's the other end, which is maybe even the pressures on the creator. Oh my gosh, like people are totally into this. There's this other aspect that comes in, which is called pride, right? I want to live up to the expectations that all these people have. Um, And then I think there's this other component, which is frankly invisible unless you've you've launched a campaign. I've done two, and so I've kind of eaten my own dog food. Uh, (laughs) And it is really anxiety driving. Like when you're going in perhaps to pitch an investor, but in this case the investor is the internet. You push that green button that says launch, mm-hmm. right? And you kind of hover with your mouse over and you're like, ah! And you get up and walk away and you come back and like, I felt all that, right? It is yeah. stress-inducing. And it's mostly around does anybody believe in me? And is anybody going to help me? And then there's the, the harder one, actually, which is once you've launched, nobody knows about it at that point. You actually have to tell people, right? So, so there's all this kind of like emotion mixed into it. And then I'll, I'll say the, this last part is, you know, for the most part, many of, not all, but many of the people that are running campaigns are untested in what they're doing. Like, it's the first time they're doing it, right? And so there is a lot of faith that's getting put into these systems. I think related to, to that is this aspect, and we talked about this a lot in that sort of elevator pitch days. Like, if you were to literally go back and look at our deck... We talk about this as a form of entertainment, which is, you know, reality TV and, and the like. Like, let's say you back my project, $10. Mm-hmm. I achieve the goal. We go on our merry way. I go and start to build the thing. 
oh my god, something that I didn't plan for happened. Oops, disaster strikes. I write about it in the project updates. Like you're actually getting a story along with right. it, and you get to live right. vicariously through me. Right. That's worth ten dollars. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, there's this whole like, and, and this is all very early and kind of coming about, but we see it play out all the time, all the time. Like projects taking longer than they had projected because right. guess what? They'd never done it before, right? Or you're trying to be overly hopeful and, and things like that. So yeah. So you you were head of design when you were there. Yep. What what were the what did that look like on a day to day basis? Was it coming up with these are the different components of a campaign that we think are going to drive engagement or mm. what kind of things did you do? So, you know, A, as co-founder, I was like chief cook and bottle washer with Perry and Yancey early on, right? Like we did everything and then slowly we get to hire people yep. that are better at certain things than we are. When we launched, I'd run uh, engineering, design, and product management or product. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I was the product guy and Perry was the product guy. And, uh, and then we sort of broke that down. I kind of moved away from engineering. It's not my sweet spot. And I think I say all that in the construct. If you just look at design and product, right, uh, and then its relationship to engineering or, frankly, its relationship to customer support and outreach, these are other disciplines or divisions of the company, at one level, our job is reflection, insight, what's happening on the platform. And that leads to um, two thoughts. Uh, one, what are things that we can improve or fix, right? Um, so focused on the tools or features that are out there. And then based on what we're seeing, not only on the platform, but in Twitter and the real world and projects that we're backing as well, um, there's this sort of more aspirational thought of, huh, like where else can this go? And what other things can we build to either make the experience better for backers discovering projects to um, creators producing projects or marketing their projects or, or, or the like? Um, how do you lower the bar to um, create a Kickstarter project? Because as I said earlier, like it's pretty stress-inducing, right? I, I've, I mean, I've definitely, I've had ideas in the past where yeah. I've thought, oh, I, maybe I should do a Kickstarter for this. And I, yeah. later, I was like, and as it should be, I mean, it's it's not a, oh, yeah, you, you do something really on a lark. It's, no, you really need to think about how you're going to do this, how you're going to make it happen, and as it should if you're asking people to give you money to totally. support you doing it. Totally, totally. Yeah. And, then, and I will say, as you say, lark, yes, that's true, but there have been some pretty wild project proposals that are out there that get funded and it's just because it's it's like it's like the project itself is the art form mm-hmm. anyway so an example of like lowering the bar to mm-hmm. make it easier this isn't a technical feature but it's maybe a program so it's maybe more of like a marketing endeavor if you will but uh, we have this initiative uh, that we run periodically called quick starter okay. sort of play on the name yeah. which is just like think about a really small project something you can do over the weekend that that the constraint is a thousand dollars, right? So creative people, I think there's a, a misconception that creative people just like the sky is blue and I can you know, like, kind of, I don't need any boundaries. Right. Leave me alone. Right. It's like no, no, no. Artists, designers, engineers, like constraints are are necessary. And so in that idea, it's like something very quick, like very short to produce, um, with a very low goal, like a thousand dollars or less. Right, and that's a way to get a lot of people like, hey, I can do something super fun. It doesn't need to be this this life's work kind of project. Right. I read an interview that you gave a, a couple of years ago, and it it I, I hope this makes sense when I put this in context because <laughs> yeah. it, reading the story reminded me of the scene in the Social Network when Mark Zuckerberg is sitting there, or. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg is sitting there yeah, and he has yeah. the idea of relationship statuses, Facebook, that mm. we're ready to launch, like, and he's running across campus and he's yeah. like, yeah, it's ready, uh, take yeah, it yeah, live. Yeah, yeah. So 
in this interview, you talked about the design achievement that maybe you were most proud of was mm-hmm. what you did with the reward system from that's incentivizing people uh, to support a project. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about just kind of what you did there and whether whether it was kind of an aha moment of instead of maybe prescribing to people what the reward should be, maybe we should be looking thinking about this in a different way. Yes. Uh, no, that's a good one. And actually, you're like – so I'm a visual person. I'm a designer, right? Uh, and so like literally I'm, I, I, I'm recounting my monitor, my screen <laughs> – and the Illustrator file back in 2008, Perry and I on Skype or something, whatever. Early on, it was uh, a reward. I mean, think about it, right? You're, you're, I'm running a campaign to fund a film. What's the easiest thing to get give you? The film, right? right? And but then also, what I would say is like what we saw again. This is a, this is I think a very important part to being a creative person, or maybe in this context of conversation, like an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm is just being hyper-observant. And um, Perry Yancey and I all kind of subscribe to that. Um, actually, most of the team like definitely subscribes to that. You, you're looking for people who are observant and curious. And so the the story in with regard to rewards and the story with regard to curiosity is looking at the fringe of the Internet. And I got to paint a picture. Like, this was uh, <laughs> Obama the 08 election, mm-hmm. right? And there was a particular story that we had seen um, as journalism was tanking and mm-hmm. continues to have trouble, mm-hmm. right? Financially, right? Uh, journalists getting laid off. Journalist was laid off right before uh, the DNC and she wanted to cover, she was supposed to cover the DNC. So what did she do? PayPal button on her blog. She already had some following. Uh, if you support me, Here's a thousand dollars. I'll call you on the floor and give you a little rundown. I mean, it was it was literally mapped out rewards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen this a couple of times. There's a couple Jill Solbuel, like there was a couple of projects that were out in the world that um, had done this. Um, I call it a V8 moment. You said an aha moment, right? I'm dating myself a little bit, but you know there is a moment of like, why didn't we think of that? Yeah. Now, when you say aha moment, it's a little unfair because at the same time everything's moving so fast and you're just you're constantly questioning everything you're building and so we oscillated back and forth but essentially if I kind of piece things together observation thought and then this like oh my god we're so stupid it's it's hard to say like there was an aha moment but there were several things that led us to that decision and you know and, and even then it's not a perfect system there's things that we think about in terms of like how do we guide people to um, I'll give a, an example that I personally um, am not fond of is uh, the t-shirt reward, right? Mm-hmm. The sort of swag kind of mm-hmm. reward. Like, I don't really need another tote bag or t-shirt. I'd rather um, either give you something that I'm going to get that's going to be a, an honest memory or the object that you're mm-hmm. providing. Or, and this is, I have to attribute this to my wife, actually. There's a one particular field in, when you back a project um, called No Reward. It's like the no thanks, mm-hmm. um, which is, I really want to support you. I love, like, super cool. Like, I love your ambition, your creativity, I want to support that, um, but actually, I don't need any. I don't need. I don't need another DVD, or I don't need that thing. Like it's cool, and um, and my wife. That was my wife's kind of thought, which was more directed around. I want to be able to give any. Like you, you price your thing at ten dollars. Hey man, I want to give you twenty dollars. Like I think it's worth twenty dollars. The market kind of defines what what that is, and so maybe it's got a little contorted. But again, like you know, even your wife or your significant other has some influence over the thing that you're building. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. 
you have a long-standing interest in architecture. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that interview that I was just referencing was okay. on an architecture blog called Architizer. Yeah, 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 with Karen Wong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering how it all has architecture influenced the way you think about web design. Yeah, big time, actually. I'll provide another bit of context <laughs> yeah, that will yeah. 100% date me. Uh, so <laughs> for anybody uh, listening, maybe you, uh, there, was an, there was an old term in the web industry, I'm using air quotes, called the webmaster. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Chief cook and bottle washers <laughs> did stuff, right? Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> reference, right? And so that's what I was. So, you know, like back in the early 90s when the commercial internet and then the web and then Mark Andreessen just, you know, only a couple of hours away invented Mosaic, like, you know, that is this moment in the 92 to 94, 95 zone where I came up. And I should say, like, I was going to school at Purdue in in middle of Indiana, uh, studying mechanical engineering. And uh, and so there was no internet right. practice thing to right. learn, right? There was no discipline of that. There was no school for, I mean, you go to CS, I guess, but, like, nobody, like, anyway. Uh, and there was definitely no web, right, visual web. And so, and nothing commercial about it. And so previous to... Mechanical engineering, longer story why I ended up there, not architecture, but for another day. There was a couple of things that were going on in that moment. So I was interested in technology, code. Um, I was interested in technology, like clearly hardware. I was in mechanical engineering. I was interested in, and I didn't have this word back then, but I was interested in design. I played her a lot by, by virtue of my interest in technology. I was just constantly playing with software. Photoshop, uh, I can't even think of what video editing stuff, music, you know, like making music, and just like playing constantly. And uh, and then I was also um, very deeply interested in music. I DJ, DJed back then. DJs throw parties to get an audience to listen to them. Yeah. Uh, and because I played with computers and used Photoshop and Illustrator, I was also the guy who made the flyers to promote the party. So I was the designer. Didn't know this, right? right. Um, and then right. going back to high school, um, I was very deeply inspired and in, I was interested in architecture, but really gravitated towards the collection of architects and designers and artists that came out of the Bauhaus from Germany um, and then ended up at in Chicago at, I, at what would become IIT and then uh, Black Mountain College in, in uh, the Southeast. Um, and some in New York and London. But anyway, so I, I was very interested in that narrative. The internet kind of pulled all of that together for me. And I would say that the way in which I thought about, because I didn't have any frame of reference for web sure. design, it wasn't a thing, um, was architecture, product design, art. And I think still, to this day, I lean... I get a lot of inspiration from things going on on the internet, 100%. But much of my... Um, I think design aesthetic and design ethos was driven by Mies van der Rohe or Brewer or um, Charles and Ray Eames. And, um, and there's a wide range, but it, it is essentially around, fits very well, very cleanly into the whole concept of user experience and customer journeys and all these <laughs> things. But how is somebody going to experience the thing? And how do you provide a, a highly functional product? Right, so leaning more towards function than than aesthetic, that balance of form and function. Right, form follows function, um, and I think that that led a lot of my work when we were founding the company. Conversations with Perry when we were talking about the product and how should it be, and then that became then 
influence and guidance for the team when we had the opportunity to hire a team and, and do all that. So, yeah. So, in 2013, yeah. Forbes <clears throat> named you and Perry Chen yeah. and Yancey Strickler three co-founders to its list of the top 12 most disruptive figures in business. Yeah. And we hear a lot today about disruptors, disrupted industries. We were talking about journalism, and I think is a great example. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a disruptor? And <laughs> if so, yeah. what does that term, what does it mean to you? Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that you're giving me some room to answer yes. that. Yeah, I like that. Uh, because I understand where comes from uh different people have different definitions for that i think meaning incumbents of industry people who are existing owners as of an industry um look at it as a, a bad word it's like a four-letter word mm-hmm. you're the disruptor you know you're the the naughty boy in the back of the class almost synonymous with destruction probably 100%. oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a word that comes from fear mm-hmm. but if you look at like the silicon valley narrative it's like disruptor it's like yeah right which is takes me back as a kid so as a kid i was very shy, pretty quiet. It was not disruptive in class necessarily. Um, maybe sometimes, but everyone anyway. Not I was not like this bad kid in class, but I was also very deeply inspired by and into um, electronic dance music, punk rock, industrial stuff. All this stuff that's on the fringe that is ultimately disruptive to intending to be disruptive to society because they're they feel that um, frankly industry is kicking them out. And there's a lot of stories and cases of that actually happening. And so the disruptor term, I, I don't like it because it it also feels as though I'm coming after you. Right. Right? And I'm like, nah. It's like, if I take you back to pre, pre-2009 through to today, it's not... I mean, there is a, a narrative of, like, fighting a system, but it's not to fight the system. It's not, like, an academic thing, like, we want to take you down. It's, I want to help you. You can't, you, I'm pointing to you, whatever, you're in front of me, you know, are um, unable to produce your thing, like, whether it's a product or a work of art, film, again, whatever, tabletop game, because the industry says there's not a big enough market for your thing. You don't. You just want to see the thing made. If one person bought your thing, that would be a success, right? right. Number one. Anything up from there is like, oh my god, I'm so happy. I'm so happy, right? Uh, and then suddenly you become wealthy, and then whatever. And so I think the, the narrative was more like we want to give people a fighting chance to even be heard because there's a lot of people that couldn't even be heard, and we felt that that was unfair. We understood the economics of industry, right? Like. I'm paid a six-figure salary as an executive at a record label. Uh, the company needs to be able to support that. I want to protect my job. So I'm looking for a band that's going to be the next Nirvana, right. the next, like, I'm, again, right. dating right. myself, uh, you know, the next big thing that wasn't a big thing before. But it's got a map to something else that, that exists, right, uh, or that it has existed, that's created a, that broke through that, that, that noise or that filter. And so that's all we were trying to do is just give people an opportunity to be heard and you know if it hurt the feelings of people that were incumbents of an industry like could care less frankly and that, that's maybe where the disruption comes in so I, I think it's interesting too because I also saw related that all makes complete sense and I related to it though I saw that you tweeted earlier this week mm. which I 
You didn't know Alaska. Oh my god, I think <laughs> I, did, you I, under I, Twitter, just, right? I just threw up. <laughs> yeah, okay. But no, I thought I, I I think it it shows the other side of what you're talking about there because mm-hmm. you said a constant personal frustration as we try to make the world better. Yeah, yeah. Do yeah, we yeah, in okay. fact make it worse? Wow. And yeah. So I'm wondering when you're thinking about mm-hmm. and maybe this is maybe this is a good segue to talk about because I, you said I kickstarted an advisory role yeah. at this point yeah, yeah, but yeah. I know you have other things that you're doing so this yeah. might be a good way to talk about those as well cool. but are there any kind of when you're thinking through a project and thinking about how for lack of a better term you're disrupting yeah. something yeah. are there any guiding principles that you're trying to look at that is saying exactly what you were just pointing out that mm. it's not a case of I'm just trying to burn it all to the ground just because yeah. I can or I want to but it's yeah. about trying to give in the case of Kickstarter giving more people access that didn't have totally. access before so I'm wondering how you approach that so it isn't just an act of in the words of your in your tweet of yeah. not just making things worse, worse because we can totally well and, and really where that so I'll give some context I was flying to New York and in New York there's a, a friend, a guy I know, uh, this guy Alan Chuchnov. Alan uh, runs a uh, program at the School of Visual Arts called Products of Design. It's their product design uh, course. He also is the founder and or uh, editor-in-chief of um, Core 77, which is an industrial design, product design blog. And this is a thought that's like pervasive for me because I would argue, um, and it really comes from a, a, a statement around, uh, mostly around the environment. Right, so there's this con- conflict. Like I'm a product designer. Now. Yeah, I create software things, um, but frankly, that software things, uh, that software thing, Kickstarter, allows other people to create physical, quote unquote, hardware things, objects, uh, in some cases. And so the, the the sad part, perhaps, is well, where do some of those things go? This is why I don't like the T-shirt mm-hmm. t- concept because eventually that T-shirt truly has nothing to do with the project. It's just a indication that you back the project maybe it's an ugly t-shirt you never wear it it ends up in the landfill and so both sides both on production and destruction of that t-shirt is a negative for the environment right and that pains me right Um, because i love nature and i want to spend as much time out of the city as i possibly can and so going back to alan back in the kickstarter day like back when i was at kickstarter um we were in a conversation and he's exactly the same and he has a highly poetic human being and we were having this conversation around um, even his plight with teaching students how to be product designers and putting them out in the world you're going to go make stuff Mm -hmm. that stuff inherently is bad for the world Mm -hmm. so how do we make the future stuff either better for the world there's a lot of conversation around that with with regard to materiality, like new materials and so forth, and then uh, using those materials for products that we can use every day, right? Biodegradable stuff and so forth. And so how does he influence, through his school, the idea to be all that much more thoughtful and fight for producing products that are less bad or maybe even better for the environment and so yeah segue like i am thinking about something new that again lowers the barrier for creative people to produce what they're thinking about in kind of a community environment or with a community support and one of the underlying things that i'm trying to weave into it 
and it, I don't I don't know if it's like an, it, it, a strict enforcement mechanism or if it's just something that I sort of weave into the culture of the people that use this thing that I'm building that is so far unnamed. Uh, <laughs> we'll put a name to it in a minute. Is truly thinking about and considering the environment, society, um, and future generations, right? Um, because I don't. We're in a very heavily consumerist society. I think we're, we're sort of evolving out of that. And this, I don't want to say anti-consumerism, but it definitely fits into the narrative of Kickstarter. It definitely fits into the narrative of my life. and definitely fits into the narrative of, I will say it, Lost Arts, this new thing that I'm playing with. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. Last question. Okay. You alluded earlier to, you said, oh, you know, so some of these things you might be surprised that got funded at Kickstarter like this idea like that came in you thought oh, okay maybe not and it yeah. kind of blows up and becomes something big so I'm not not asking you something like oh what was your favorite oh okay. what was the most that. what was the most memorable but just something maybe where you stood back and said wow I can't believe we pulled that off or I guess more accurately yeah. I can't believe our, our users pulled, pulled that, that off, off. both yeah, yeah. the both the creator and the people who totally. signed up to fund it, because totally. I imagine there were some, there have been some memorable ones that oh, yeah, have come, yeah. come through. Well, so you know, a, I, I'll, I'll, I feel like I want to say, give this one thing, which is, um, I often get asked, like, hey, do you think this would, like, should I run a Kickstarter? Right. Do you think this would do well? Can you give me some advice? I was like, no, like I made the thing, so I don't have to. Like, yeah. I don't have to make the decision. And some folks in the in, in the office were, you know, it's not a betting pool, but they were like. Hey, is this gonna? This is gonna be a, a massive campaign. This one. It was always about like what's gonna be the next big thing. And I never participated because I was like, I, I I'm always bad at that, you know. And I was just never interested in that. And most people who predicted predicted wrong, right? So it all kind of proves itself. I was like, I'm gonna waste, right. not gonna waste my energy. But there was a particular day <clears throat> that I dubbed the Double Rainbow Day, right? That was well, maybe there's two stories that I'll tell. One one is a little more intimate. Um, so the Double Rainbow Day. We it's very early, maybe 2010, 2011, don't remember. So as I said earlier, with every Kickstarter campaign, the person running the, the project, uh, the creator, sets a deadline. I need 30 days to raise this money. I need 60 days to raise this money. I need a day to raise this money. People have done that. This one project, I think it had been 60 days, um, whatever the maximum was at the time. Um, and uh, it they had just chipped away at this goal they surpassed their goal well over what they projected they wanted to do and they're approaching a million dollars right wow. so this is the first project to hit a million dollars we had some that were very very close like a year before but this one was hitting a milestone which you know clearly like a mil- like there's all these milestones that are insane right and so we're watching it go we're watching it go we're watching it go and then guess what it was going to hit i think it was a tuesday it was it, it was destined to hit a million dollars on a Tuesday. It was very razor close to it, um, and we're just oh my god, oh my god, is it going to do it? Is it going to do it? And then this other project launched that morning, called Double Fine. Within twelve hours, maybe even less, I don't know what the number was. They raised a million dollars. So here are these guys who <laughs> ran a campaign that took sixty days to get to a million dollars, and then like that. This other guy, this other team, guy, whatever, it doesn't matter, sex, but launched a campaign and hit it in a day. 
That's amazing. And then went on to raise, I, I think it was like $3 million or something like that. And it was just crazy. And there's a big difference between the two campaigns and the audience behind them and, and so forth that's worth getting into. But that was a day where, where I mean, literally the whole staff was like, what? <laughs> like, I mean, we lit, ran out and got champagne right. and we called the creators on Skype right. and we're like, oh my God, can you believe this? This is incredible. Um, and then the next day you just go back to work. But yeah, I think that was, there's a lot of kind of stories like that. Um, and that's certainly one of like big money. It's not the point, right? right. So the other story, if I can kind of elongate yeah. this, um, I was in a plane. I don't remember where I was going. You know, as one does, you watch a movie on the back of the seat and I'm flipping through and there was this one film that caught my attention called Innocente. And I was like, why does this catch my attention? I'm, I watch it and it's, I mean, like I get choked up every time I kind of bring it up. It's heartbreaking. It's the story of, it's a documentary that follows a high school student who is an, an immigrant from Mexico. She was an artist. She knew what she wanted to do. She was passionate. She had the support of her, of her teachers. They were homeless, right? And so there's this story of this girl who is clearly entrepreneurial, right? Like she is gonna do it and I say entrepreneurial as an artist right I think there's a very fine line between the two and actually a line that should be blurred and is blurry so I watch this film I am like a mess on this plane right it's a beautiful film everybody should go watch it Innocente uh, wins all sorts of awards at the end and then guess what you see at the end and this is why I realized oh my god this, this is familiar they're thanking all the people that back them on Kickstarter wow and I'm 30,000 feet yeah. in the air, right? And so yeah. I'm telling this story is different from the other because they didn't, I don't know how much they raised, they didn't raise like a, an astronomical amount of money. It was in the tens of thousands of dollars, which is a lot. And it was just for this documentary that you're just, you're, you're frankly not, It's it, you have to search for it. So hopefully people who are listening are going to go search for it and then cry their eyes out. And, and so it was, it was a moment of pride, clearly, but um, it was also a moment of, Humanity and in almost like the artist's name, Innocente, and the film's name, Innocente, very innocent. And that to me was another moment of like, oh, we did it. Like, that's cool. So that's very cool. Yeah. Charles Adler, thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. This has been fun. With the Sign of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.